Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. I'm glad to see everybody here today. Like I said, Pastor Rocky is out of town this morning, and so I get the privilege and honor to kind of pick up where we've left off in this series called Unreasonable Doubt. And I'm really excited about this. And as a way to review, I want to just talk about the first two weeks of this series before we pick up into some new material, some things that Pastor Rocky shared with me. The whole basis, the whole idea of this sermon series called Unreasonable Doubt is that any doubt that we have in God is completely unreasonable because God has an impeccable track record of never, ever letting us down. And so anytime that we have any doubt in our life, there is with, it is without reason because he always Always, always, always comes through. The first week we talked about disappointed doubt. Pastor Rocky shared that Satan wants our faith because it is our faith that's going to bring us through those difficult times. He doesn't want our family, our kids, our spouse. He wants our faith because that, that is what brings us through. And so in, in being disappointed in, in the middle of doubt, there are times in our life when God doesn't do things exactly the way that we hope that he would. And Pastor Rocky said that there are sometimes we can get offended and disappointed when God doesn't do things the way that we hope that he will, but that his way is always higher than our way. And then last week we talked about double-minded doubt where Pastor Rocky shared that it's in the middle of the greatest doubt that the greatest faith is born. I'm going to say that again because it is so good. It is in the middle of the greatest doubt, the greatest faith is born. We talked about doubting Thomas and how he looked physically like Jesus but didn't have faith like him. And as Christians, we operate the same way a lot of times. We're double-minded. We're Christians in our values, but we're not necessarily Christians in our faith. And so I'm going to pick up on the foundation that's been laid already throughout this series, and I'm excited about this. I'm excited about this series. I'm excited not only because I get to preach some of it, but I'm excited about what it's doing because I feel like what happens with us church people, with us Christians, is we get really good at, at with doubt, especially we get really good at hiding it not dealing with it, pretending like everything is okay in our lives. Like we don't struggle in our faith at all. Like we are the perfect Christian. In fact, probably when you walked in today, somebody handed you a bulletin with a big smile on, your fa- on their face and they said, how are you doing? And even if your world is crumbling and you have so many doubts in your mind, you probably said something like, I'm great, highly favored, blessed of God, living the dream. That's my thing. I say living the dream, right? We're good at trying to hide doubt. But the problem is that doesn't make doubt go away. It doesn't make it any better. How many of you have a, a junk drawer in your home? A, a drawer in your home, or your office, or your car? Anybody? Raise your hand. I want to see. I want to see all the junk drawer people out there. We are many. Hear us roar, right? Like, so most of us have a junk drawer. And, and, and the purpose of a junk drawer is that stuff that doesn't really have a home anywhere else in your house, it kind of just lives in that drawer. Random assortments of things that make no sense at all. Like if I would come to your house right now and look through your junk drawer, you may be embarrassed and you may have some explaining to do because of the different articles and items that are in this one drawer all crammed together. And if yours is like ours most of the time, you have to really pry that drawer open because it gets just crammed full of stuff. Can I get an amen this morning? morning, right? 
But the whole purpose of a junk drawer is to take all of the things in our, in our house, it's on underneath uh, our kitchen counter. And the kitchen counter just collects all kinds of stuff in our house. It's like the first stop when we come in from the garage entrance of the house and so bags get thrown there, keys get left there, mail gets left there, all kinds of stuff just kind of gets piled up on the countertops. And so if we get busy and going, you know, kind of in life and this stuff just kind of stays there, it starts to pile up until maybe somebody decides that they want to come over to our house. We invite somebody over to our house as, as a guest, you know, and then we do what all of you do. And if you tell me you don't do this, you're lying in my face in a church house, I'm telling you. But you clean your house like you have never cleaned your house before in your life when somebody's coming over. You care about strangers more than you care about your family when you clean your house. Don't even lie. Don't even lie to me. You know it's true. Because here's what we do. We want to pretend like when somebody comes in our house that our house is always this clean, right? That's how we, that's how we roll. Like, yeah, absolutely. Our floors are always this spotless. Absolutely. Every dish is put away and, and it's in its proper place. Absolutely. Every stitch of laundry is folded and, and put away. Every toy is in its appropriate place and in a toy chest. And so help me if one of those kids tries to get that toy out after you cleaned it up when that company's coming over, that kid's grounded for life. You know what I mean? Because how dare our company know that we play with toys in this house? I want our company to think that at any moment, our house is ready for a photographer to come and put us on the cover of Home Magazine. Like that's how we want people to see our home, right? And so what ends up happening when we're cleaning, there's all these items that don't really have a place. They don't really have a place to put them. And so they all just kind of like, like open the drawer, shove everything in, and then just, you know, kind of jam that door shut, you know, because that is the junk drawer. That's what happens with all that stuff. And we just hope that nobody sees that. Because let's just be really honest. Like if you go in your junk drawer, that's who you really are as a person. You know what I mean? Like your clean house is not who you are as a person. That weird stuff that's in your junk drawer, that's who you are as a person. And God forbid you be over our house and you have, you, you know, you're coming over for dinner and we've already cleaned up and God forbid you would need a battery or a thank you note or a half a crayon or a small Phillips head screwdriver or a garage door opener to a garage that we don't even have anymore. Like those are seriously things that are in our junk drawer. It doesn't make any sense. It's all the stuff that we want to hide. We want to pretend like when you come over our house that these things don't even exist. Like we want to put the best face forward, right? And the reality is as Christians, we are extremely good at doing the same thing when it comes to our doubts, when we get around other Christians. The reality is, is that you and me, what we want to do when we get around other people that believe the way that we do on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a Bible study or a small group or lunch with your friends or whatever it might be, we want to pretend, we want to put on this, this kind of air that there's no doubt in our life at all, that we don't struggle with doubt. No, no, no. What we do is we put all that stuff in the junk drawer and we shut it really tight and then we put it on this face when we come around here and then we just hope that everything is going to be fine. We just hope that that, that doubt doesn't really kind of creep back in. And to be honest with you, I think we just kind of put it out of sight, out of mind and hope that it just gets better on its own. But the problem with doubt is that when doubt is left alone, when doubt is hidden, when doubt is in the dark, it doesn't dissolve. It doesn't just go away on its own. In fact, it becomes the monster that grows the less attention that we give it. And so in this series, I love that we have the opportunity to expose our doubt because when we expose our doubt, we can activate our faith. When we bring our doubt out into the light of day and we say, these are the things that I struggle with, these are the things that I read in God's word that I have a really hard time processing. These are the things, big or small or everything in between, that when, when I really try and wrap my mind around it, I have a hard time. And instead of pretending like we don't, let's just all agree that we do sometimes. 
Let's bring those doubts out into the light of day so that we can deal with them. I heard somebody say that unless we wrestle with our doubt, we'll never really own our faith. And I think that is so true. Unless we bring these things out, unless we talk about them, unless we make it okay to ask questions of God about his word, then we are going to continue to have these doubts creep back into our hearts and back into our minds. And I love that God is not afraid of our doubt. I love that God knows every thought that we have. We can't hide it in a junk drawer from him. He knows all of the doubts that we have, and he still loves us anyway. He's not scared of it. He's okay with us asking him questions about it, but he doesn't want us to try and act like it's not there. And so that's why I'm so excited about where this series is heading and, and where it's been and, and where we're going with it. And so today, we're going to talk about dignified doubt. Dignified doubt. Look at somebody next to you and say, dignified. When I think of the word dignified, what I think is I think of, of a person that has achieved a certain status, whether it be from wealth or whether it be from popularity or, or whatever it took to get them into a bracket of life in society where they look down on other things or other people. Basically, like they, in their minds, there are things that are beneath them right? Whatever it might be, there are people that they won't associate with. There are places that they won't go. There are restaurants they won't eat at because they are above those things. They are dignified. There is an air of this just kind of pride around somebody like that. And before you absolutely tune out the rest of this service today, because you say that is not me at all. Like I'm a people person. Like I am a man of the people. I am not, I don't look down on anybody. I don't sit in my, you know, ivory tower. I don't, I, it, I'm not like that. Let me just say this, that when it comes to following God's will for our lives, there are times when we act dignified. When it comes to being obedient in the things that God asks us to do that might be embarrassing and not make a lot of sense to us, we have a tendency to look at those things and say, well, that's just not for me. I, I'm, that's, that's beneath me. I, I'm, I'm on this level right here. I can't, I, can't, I can't do what God's asking me to do because that would ruin a reputation or that would cost me some money or that would do this or that would do that. And so I think that all of us in this room, if we're really honest with ourselves, we can agree that we struggle with this. This is a doubt that we absolutely wrestle with on a somewhat consistent basis. When God asks us to do something that we believe is beneath us, we struggle with dignified doubt. And, and in God's word, there is this story of a man named Naaman, and in no other story is it maybe exemplified more obviously than this one. And so if you would, if you could turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to read Naaman's story this morning. 2 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to be starting in verse 1. If you have an electronic device that you're reading on, I'll be in the ESV. If you want to cheat, all the words will be behind me. Uh, if you have a paper Bible, you cannot change the translation. Sorry, unless you can, and then show me how you do that. I want to know. 2 Kings chapter 5. We're going to read a, a pretty long passage of Scripture here, so I just want you to stay with me. But I really feel like it's important for us to set this up and, and for us to get some context before we talk about the life of Naaman and his dignified doubt for us to really read the whole story from start to finish. And so it says this in 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on and now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. 
She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. So just, just a pause in the action here. So basically in today's time, I did some really simple math. Um, it would be the equivalent just in silver and gold of $3.5 million they were carrying with them. So as you can assume, there's an entourage of people traveling uh, with Naaman during this time. Verse 6. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when, you, and when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me so that, all, so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it is powerful, that it is life-giving. It is active. And God, we pray that you would show us who we are through your word today. Challenge us, encourage us to throw off our pride and to follow you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just for a second, if you would, imagine Naaman this man of stature and status, standing on the bank of this muddy, nasty, filthy Jordan River. Mud probably seeping up in between his toes. And he's standing there knowing what has been told to him about the only thing that can cure this disease that he has. And he's unsure, he's desperate, and he's dignified, and he is absolutely doubting. Before we get to that, I feel like we need to back up to the beginning of the story to really understand what Naaman is going through at that moment when his toes are on the bank of that river. I feel like we have to back up to where God's word in the first sentence really explain who Naaman is as a person. It talks about his stature in society. It talks about how wealthy he is. It talks about how he has favor with kings. He is in a position of authority where he is. If you could use one word to describe Naaman, you could use the word 
dignified. He actually, absolutely attained a status in society where he was able to look down on other people, where he would say, that's beneath me to do some things, because he had achieved that through success and through being a, a, a man of valor and through fighting in these battles and winning these battles. And so he had achieved this, this level of success, but with this success came this, this air of being dignified, and in that, we find a really prideful man. It doesn't take many verses down to figure out just how prideful Naaman is, and we know that God is extremely specific about pride in his word. He doesn't put up with it. He can't bless it. In fact, God says, or the Bible says in James 4, 6, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God actually opposes the proud. And then in 1 Peter 5 and 6, it says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. You see, here's what God's word is saying, and this speaks directly to Naaman's life and it speaks to our lives today, is that humility in our lives is going to happen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But what God's prescription for us, God's big idea, his plan for us, is for us to humble ourselves to rid ourselves of pride, to take regular checks of maintenance of our heart and our mind to see and make sure that we're not letting pride get in there because when pride gets in there, the Bible says that God opposes the proud. And so God's word says, humble yourself. Make sure that you're taking care of that because if we don't humble ourselves, we will end up humble, but it's because we will be humbled. It's because when we don't choose to get ahead of humility, to get ahead of pride, that there are circumstances in life that have a tendency for God to use to bring humility into our lives. Let me tell you, I've been on both sides of this. Can I tell you that? Can I tell you I've been on the side where I have, I have invited humility into my life and I've tried to rid my life of pride in certain areas. And I've also been on the side where there have been circumstances and hard times and, and, and these things that are uninvited that come into my life that produce some humility. Can I tell you that that one's way better than this one? Can I tell you it's way easier, way more beneficial, a lot less painful for us to humble ourselves than to wait for life circumstances to knock us off our high horse? It's always easier to humble ourselves than to be humble. Now listen, I want to be very, very plain about something. I am not standing here saying that God puts bad things on people to teach them a lesson. I'm not standing up here saying that God made you this or did this to your family or did this to you to teach you a lesson and to make you humble. No, but I believe that God takes the things that happen in our lives and that he will use them for his purposes. And his purposes are always to lead us to a place of humility. And so in Naaman's life, what we find here is that thing that happened in his life, that circumstance, that problem that he's got that God's about to use is this problem called leprosy. Leprosy is a disease that years ago when this text is written, is, there's no known cure for it at the time. It's a nasty disease. It's a disease that affects the nervous system, it affects the skin, and it in fact it will make the, uh, the extremities go numb over time. 
And so not only do you have this appearance of the, where you'll be disfigured because of these large sores and things that are all over your body, but, but you can't feel fingers and toes, hands and feet, nose and ears, those kind of things. It, it's hard to feel those. And so back in the day, what was pretty common was someone would, uh, if they were a leper, they would get an injury on, on one of these extremities. They would have no idea because they couldn't feel it. They were numb. And that, that injury would result in sores that wouldn't heal, and that would result in either amputations or pieces of a person's body actually just falling off. It's grotesque, it's gruesome. I apologize if that offends you this morning, but I want us to make sure we know what Naaman is dealing with. We know that Naaman got a death sentence when he found out that he had leprosy. And not only that, but leprosy in the community, in society, because it's extremely contagious, is the people that have leprosy are looked down upon. In fact, they're sent off into these separate communities, these leper colonies that are usually in caves outside of the city walls. Basically, what would happen if you got leprosy is they shipped you out of town, away from the people that you loved, away from your life that you've worked so hard to build, and they would send you out with all of these other people while you sit around with all of these other people that are waiting to die, and you wait to die too. It's extremely depressing, it's extremely lonely, Socially, they're looked down upon, and there's no cure for it. And so now Naaman, being in this place and stature in his life where he's never had to experience anything that he couldn't buy or influence his way into or out of, now he is staring dead at a disease that he cannot buy a cure for, and that his social status means nothing because he's about to be isolated for the rest of his life. And so this problem is the problem that God is going to use to get to Naaman's pride and find humility that's buried way down deep inside of Naaman's heart. We see that as the story continues to unfold, things happen, and because of this little girl that just said that there's a prophet somewhere, that Naaman went, and he ends up at the doorstep of this this prophet, Elisha. And he shows up at the doorstep, and I want us to to really kind of picture this in our mind, that, that he doesn't just show up by himself just kind of with some sores on his body. No, he shows up with the entourage. He shows up with the chariots and the horses because they're carrying three and a half million dollars worth of silver and gold just to carry it physically took a whole fleet, right? And then they had armed guards to make sure that nobody was going to take it and attack them for all of those riches. And so they show up at Elisha's door and he knocks on the door and here's what he's expecting. He's expecting for Elisha to come out the door, welcome him, say, hi, how you doing? Wave his hand over him, literally wave his hand over him. And then by some God or magic, I don't think Naaman really cared at the time, but he was going to be healed. And then Naaman was fully expecting to give all of that money right to Elisha. Elisha, like most prophets do, he kind of flipped the script, right? This very important, very powerful, very rich man shows up at his door and he doesn't even dignify him by coming outside, You talk about being offensive. He doesn't even answer the door at his own house. Instead, what he does is he sends somebody to give word to him and says, hey, if you really want to be healed, here's how you're going to do it. I'm not going to wave my hand over you. There's not going to be some ceremony. No, you're going to go down to this dirty river right down the road here, and you're going to get in the water, and you're going to dip seven times. And when you do, you're going to be healed. This plan is strange. It's awkward. It's undignified. And when Naaman hears it, he will have none of it. You talk about being disappointed and offended by God's plan. I mean, this is not what he expected at all. So he takes off, right? Thankfully, he's got some servants that are with him that care about him a lot. And they talk him into going back, kind of sarcastically ask him, is this seriously what the guy said and you're not going to do it? 
And so he turns around and he realizes that he could, he could maybe just possibly get over this disease. He realizes that in this moment, there's no other way out of this thing. There's no plan B. There's no other option. If he goes back home, he's going to go straight to the leper colony to wait out his days, dying with a bunch of other people that are dying, his body wasting away. So he finds himself in a place of desperation. And the amazing thing is, is that in this time, this is when things start to change for Naaman. It was this desperation that began to overrule his dignity. This desperation where he realized that if it's not for this, then I have nothing else. Like my life is over. I've got nothing to hold on to. My money is worthless. My status is worthless. Nothing means anything. I am desperate. And when he becomes desperate, you see that dignity, that pride start to take a back seat because he realizes this is the only shot that he's got. And I feel like us in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we've got to get to a place where we realize that we cannot do it on our own, but we've got to become desperate. We have got to become desperate to hear God's voice. We have got to become desperate to listen to his leading and follow after him. And this is where we see Naaman now, desperate, but still holding on to, to this dignity, this pride that's in his heart. But he realizes that being dignified and being healed they cannot coexist. It's not going to happen at the same time. So something's got to break. And so we see Naaman standing on the bank of a muddy Jordan River, unsure, doubting, desperate, dignified, trying to figure out what was going to happen next. Because you have to understand that Naaman is standing at the edge of this river and it is going to humiliate him to walk down into the water. And here's what I think Naaman doubted more than anything else. And I think it's probably the same thing that we doubt when it comes to taking big steps in our faith with God. I think Naaman doubted most, not that God could heal him. He showed up with three and a half million dollars to pay the man of God who was going to wave his hand over him and heal him. He had faith that God could do it. It wasn't about that for Naaman. He had faith that God could. Where his doubt came in is if God would. Where Naaman was in this place in his mind, he's standing on the bank of this river, and he says, if I humiliate myself, and if I become undignified, and I walk down into this muddy river, and I dip seven times, and I come up on the seventh time, and when I come up, all that I am is a muddy leper, I'm going to be humiliated. My life, my status, my, my place in society is all going to be for nothing. I'll have done that, and nothing positive will have happened. Don't we struggle with the same exact doubt? Can we just be honest with ourselves for a second Amen. and just say that I don't think that we doubt that God can. We come in here every Sunday and we sing songs about how powerful and mighty and amazing and victorious God is, and we raise our hands and we pray to him, and we believe that absolutely God can do things. We've seen some things happen in our lives where God has done things that make no sense at all. That we realize that in our own understanding, we can't grasp it, right? And so we believe that God can, where we struggle with dignified doubt, is believing that God will. Believing that God will actually come through for us. Not that he can, not that he has the power to, but that he actually will meet us where he says he's going to meet us. But here's what Naaman does that starts to turn him into kind of a hero. 
Here's what Naaman does that we start looking at his life as an example of what to do instead of what to avoid. Because as he's standing on the bank of this muddy river, all these thoughts running through his head, dignified and doubtful and just unsure and not knowing what the next step is going to be, you know what he does? He doesn't necessarily maybe dive headfirst into the river, but he takes a step off of the bank and he starts to wade into the water. He takes another step then, deeper into the water. He takes another step and another step until he's like dip depth. You know what I mean? Dip depth. That's a tongue twister for you. But he's deep enough to where he can actually start plunging himself under the water. It's one step after the next step after the next step. He didn't know what was going to happen. He literally probably, I've seen pictures of the Jordan River and people put their hands this far underneath the water. You cannot see the hand. It's that muddy. And so when he put his foot in there, his foot just disappeared in the mud. There's no way to know what's happening next. So every step that he took was a step of faith. I don't know what's coming next. I don't know what's going to happen next. But I know if I stand on the shore line and I stand on the bank of this river with my arms crossed and dignified, nothing's going to happen. And so I might as well start taking some steps and ridding myself of dignity and ridding myself of, of pride. And every step that he took and every dip that he went under, there was a little bit more pride and a little bit more pride that was washed away down the river until he was completely healed. But you see, it took that first step off the bank to get him all the way into the middle of the river. You see, I feel like sometimes we want God to unravel the whole plan for us all at one time and say, okay, here's your first step, and then your second step, watch out, third step's a doozy, and then after that, the fourth step, that's a little bit easier, and then you're going to do this, 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 and then blessing town, (laughs) right? Like, I want to see the whole thing. You know what I mean? Like when I look something up on GPS on my phone, I go all the way to the destination first before I just trust it blindly, right? And that's what we want to do with God. We want to say, okay, God, I'll follow you. I'll get into that river, sure. But I need to know every single step and I need some guarantees in this whole process that things are going to happen the way that you say that they're going to happen. But we neglect to take that first step. And without the first step, we never see the last step. It's like this. I, I, I am not afraid of, of airplanes, of flying. Maybe you are. Let's just say you are. For this illustration, you are very afraid of airplanes, okay? But let's just say that we're in the airport and we're going to the same place. We're sitting next to each other in the terminal. And we're having a conversation about how freaked out you are of flying and how confident I am, right? And I say something like, I am 95% sure that when I get on that airplane, that airplane is going to touch down on our destination and we're going to be completely fine. Like I have no, 98%, I am 99% sure, right, that we're going to get there. Like I'm the, I'm the weirdo that thinks turbulence kind of feels like a roller coaster, so I'm in, you know. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm telling you all this, and then you say, you know what, if I was really honest, like 10%, maybe, max, 10%, I have 10% faith that when I get on that airplane that I am going to arrive to my destination. 90% sure it's going to end in a ball of flame somewhere, like, or, you know, in the bottom of the ocean. Like, I'm, I'm just not that confident at all, right? So we're having this conversation back and forth. I'm 99%, you're 10%. See how I'm the hero in this whole situation? And so... We're having this conversation and over the intercom they say that they're now boarding passengers for our rows and so we get up and we walk down the jetway and we step off of the jetway onto an airplane. We take our seats which just happen to be next to each other. The plane takes off, lands at its destination and we both walk off fine. You only had 10% trust and faith that that plane was going to do what it was supposed to do. I had 99% faith that the plane was going to do what it was supposed to do. It didn't matter that I had more faith 
or that you had less faith. What mattered is that we both had enough faith to take a step onto the plane. You see, when we trust God, it doesn't matter how much faith we have or how much faith we don't have. What matters is, is that we have enough faith to just take that initial step into his will. We have enough faith to, to, to like Naaman did, take another step into that muddy water because we believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. We believe that on the other side of that, that we're going to walk out and that we are going to be healed. It doesn't matter the measure of faith. What matters is you have enough faith to take a step. And so let me ask you this today. Can we just get real just for a second? You know, don't answer this out loud. What is your Jordan River right now? What is that thing that you are too dignified for that God is calling you into? What is that thing that is beneath you that you know God is leading you into something or leading you out of something but every time you feel that pull, it's like, no, 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 no. That's, that's just a little, uh, that's a little weird. No, that's a little out there. No, that's a little, that's a little scary. That's a little embarrassing. That's beneath me. I'm a little too dignified for that. It's a little undignified for me. Maybe for you today, it's unforgiveness in your heart. You've got unforgiveness because somebody did wrong by you. Legitimately, you have a case, right? Somebody did something to you that caused this root of bitterness and this root of resentment and this root of unforgiveness. And you realize that God is, is calling you. He's asking you to do something a little undignified. He's asking you to try to, to, to let them know that you forgive them, to try to patch things up, to try to build a bridge in this relationship that you think is just crumbled. And that first step from the bank into the muddy waters might just be picking up the phone today and dial in that number. But what if, what if, what if they don't answer the phone? What if they just kick at the voicemail every single time and I never get a chance to talk to them? Or, or what if, what if they answer the phone? What if they answer the phone and we just yell at each other and they cuss me out and hang up on, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, but if God is drawing you this way, are you gonna let your pride get in the way? Are you going to stand on the bank of the river dignified with your arms crossed? Because I can tell you that as long as Naaman was on the bank of the river dignified, he was still diseased. It's not until we get into the water that that disease leaves. It's not until we get dippable depth that the blessings come our way. Maybe for you it's some vice or some habit that you just know that God is, is wanting to heal you from. And, and you, just, you just know that God is calling you out of this into healing. And maybe for you, that first step is to, to flush something down the toilet or to, to just get rid of some influences in your life or whatever it might be. And you've been hanging out on the bank because you just feel like, well, well I need it. Well, what, what would happen if, and what if people find out and, and, and you just dignified, it's beneath you, it's below you. But what if today you just took that first step and instead of being dignified and diseased, you went all the way in? Or maybe for you, it's, it's not even something that, that God's calling you out of. Maybe it's something that God's calling you into. Maybe God's calling you in your occupation or in your job or an opportunity that you have for a vocation. And, and there's this opportunity in front of you and it's big. It's bigger than you. And you know that God is leading you toward it. You know that it's going to be a fundamental life change for you and your family. And you've been so scared of it that you've just kind of left it out here. You've kind of just pushed it off and pushed it off and pushed it off and be like, no, no, no. What if I try that and then it doesn't work? How embarrassing will that be? What will happen here? What will happen there? And what, what are all the logistics? But maybe today you need to take that first step. 
You need to write that email, or you need to call that person, or you need to get that ball rolling somewhere in that arena. Maybe for you, you're in here today, and you realize that God is, is nudging you. He is tugging on your heart. And you've been controlling your life, your own way, for a long time. And you've been resisting his voice. You, you know that he's trying to talk to you. You know it. You know that he's leading you into a relationship with him, but you just try and keep it out here because after all, what would people say and what would people think and what would my life be different? And I like the things in my life right now. Maybe for you today, that first step off of the bank is just saying, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. You know what? I, I, I can't fix my own life. You know what? I, I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And because we can stand up here on the shore all day long dignified, looking down at it, full of pride. But nothing changes and nothing is healed and nothing is blessed when we choose pride over humility. But here's the sticking point. You ready? Because I, 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 I understand, I understand a sermon like this. I, I, I know when I was preparing it, there, there were some things I didn't want to write down that I wrote down. I know that this is a challenging thing. I would much rather stand up here and make you laugh the whole time. Can I be honest with you, right? And so even though you may feel challenged and, and maybe even a little bit motivated to step out, there, there might be something in the back of your head saying, but, but what if, right? The whole sticking point is, yeah, all that sounds good and yeah, he did it for Naaman, but, but how, how do I know? How do I know that if, if I humble myself? How do I know if I step off the bank? How do I know if I take that step and that step and I end up in the bottom of the river and I'm dunking my head under? How do I know that on the seventh time I'm going to come up and the blessing is going to be there and the healing is going to be there and my life is going to be changed for the better? How do I know that? What is the guarantee that I have? That's what we really want. And although I can't give you a guarantee, I can tell you that God will never let you down. And that to know the guarantee that we have, we don't have to look any further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Because this is what the word says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the one person in the history of humanity who had a right to stand with their arms crossed and say, no, you know what? That cross, that criminal execution, that humiliation that I'm supposed to go for because I'm supposed to save the world. No, no, no. That's way beneath me. I am royalty. I am all God and I am all man. And I refuse to do that. He would have had every right to do that. But instead, he took on the form of a servant and he chose humility and he chose death, even death on a cross. And so it's not like we're here today worshiping some God and worshiping some savior that's a billion miles away that has no idea what it feels like to step and step and step. We're worshiping a savior who took all of those steps before we did. And it's not like we're walking out into the middle of a river to be by ourselves. It's that he's already been out in the middle of the river. He's just waiting on us to go. And so are you going to go? Are you going to go today? Because you know that we have a Savior that's already there. You know in your heart of hearts, you know down here that when you take those steps, that your life is going to be blessed. Is it going to be easy? No. 
Is it always going to be roses? No. Are you going to encounter resistance? Yes. But is it going to be worth it? Without a doubt, yes. Without a doubt. Because with obedience comes blessing. With obedience comes healing. With humility comes that opportunity that God has to raise you up and to heal you and for your life to be a story of his goodness and his grace. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.